This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Aloha. All right. Mahalo too. <laughs> How many of you have been to Hawaii before? Awesome. How many of you wish you'd been to Hawaii before? <laughs> uh, that's where my wife and I are from, and we're so glad to be here at GYC, to be here in Texas. It's a little bit cold for us, but the, the warmth of Jesus' love makes up for it. And uh, just want to thank you guys so much for coming to this seminar. I trust that you prayed before you came, the Holy Spirit led you here, and I believe that what we're going to be discussing in this next six presentations, two today and four tomorrow, is something that really interests heaven. Angels are interested in this. God is interested in this. Because what we're dealing with in this seminar, I'm sure others will be dealing with it as well, but in this seminar I know that what we're dealing with is eternal salvation of humanity. And how God not only wants to save us, but he wants to use us to be a medium of salvation to others. And as we reach out, God reaches in and gives to us a corresponding experience of revival. And so I want to thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, this is actually a shorter version of a 12-part series entitled The Art of End-Time Preaching. And so we'll give you at least half of the seminar if you choose to come each, uh, each time. Uh, but if you're interested in the whole seminar, you can always go to our website, artofpreachingseminar.com. And uh, we have the whole thing there as well. But, uh, of course, it's best in living color. So we're so happy you're here today. Uh, in this first presentation, we're going to lay a good, solid foundation and discuss the theology of preaching. And I've entitled it The Power of the Tower. And it's going to be a very inspiring message. It will lay a good, solid foundation as to the definition of preaching. And then after that, we'll be uh, talking about the nitty-gritty and some of the details and the methods and, and the content and, and all of those things. And so we hope that you'll uh, continue to come, not only for this seminar, but others as the Holy Spirit leads. Uh, you know, I think it's better to understand some, you know, one thing very well rather than a whole bunch of things not very well. And so, uh, but, you know, you let the Holy Spirit lead and I'm sure uh, he'll show you exactly where you need to be for the rest of the seminars. But why don't we jump into it? Our time is limited, so we're going to pray and jump into God's Word. Are you ready? All right, why don't we bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your great love and your mercy towards us, for waking us up this morning and giving us a new day to live, uh, not only here in this world, but Lord, you've given us the promise of abundant life and eternal life when you come, and the opportunity of sharing this life with those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And Lord, we pray that as we spend this time together fellowshipping in the Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would not only be with us, but you'd be in us. That you'd fill us with that power and that presence. And I pray that we would be inspired, we would be challenged, we would be richly blessed, and you would make our minds like a sponge that we might soak up every promise and every principle that you have for us today. So please lead us and guide us. May you be the teacher, is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Our message this morning is entitled, The Power of the Tower. Our objective is simply this, what is preaching? And where is the source of its power? 
we want to outline the theology of preaching and the biblical definition of what it is exactly. And so if you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says this concerning preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I hope you not only brought a Bible, but you brought a notebook. I encourage you to write down the scriptures, uh, not only so that you can study, but that you can share with somebody else. But notice what it says here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. If you're there and if you're ready to study, would you please let me know by saying amen. amen. The apostle says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the what? The power of God. Here the Apostle Paul testified that his preaching was a demonstration of power. And if you look up that word power, in the Greek it's the word dunamis, by which we get the English word dynamite. If you know something about dynamite, it has the ability to change things very drastically. And that was the proclamation of Paul's testimony of, of the Lord. The proclamation of the testimony of God contains the power that will change the world and enlarge the kingdom of heaven. And friend, God wants Paul's testimony to be the testimony of each and every one of us. And I believe, friends, that one of the reasons why we have not entered into the promised land is because there are obstacles ahead of us. Just like I shared the other night, it was only when all of Israel shouted that the walls of Jericho came crumbling down and they were, enter, they were, they were able to enter into the promised land. It wasn't just the priests blowing the trumpet. When all of God's people shouted, when all of them used their voices, there was a loud cry that was heard. And as I mentioned before, the work of God in the last days is not going to get finished by simply adding members, only by multiplying messengers. God wants to use every single voice, and only when all of the voices of God's people are used will the loud cry message be heard in all the world, and the walls of Babylon will come crumbling down, and finally we'll be able to enter into the heavenly promised land. Amen? So God can use you, friends. I mean, if He can use me, He can use anybody. Let me tell you, friends, I'm the least likely candidate to preach. I'll share a little bit about my testimony later on, but growing up, you know, I was very introverted. I'm still introverted, very shy, and, and, and I had a stuttering problem, and my English was very limited because in Hawaii, you know, let me just say, my English is my second language. My first language is broken English. <laughs> That's what we speak in Hawaii. And so I had so many obstacles. I burnt up a lot of my brain cells doing drugs, and, you know, I was the least likely candidate to preach. And so let me tell you, friends, if God can use someone like me, he wants to use all of us. Amen? And friends, I believe that what Paul said, we can say as well. Not long ago, somebody gave me a book entitled Speeches That Changed the World. And this is a book that catalogs the speeches that have shaped the history of our world. And amongst this extensive catalog was the address of President Lincoln given on the battlefield that was saturated with the blood of those who had fought for freedom during the American Civil War, there in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was a speech that was only 10 sentences long, lasting two minutes, 
but it will be remembered for all time. And then there was the eloquent oration of Martin Luther King Jr. given on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial there in Washington, D.C. And in this discourse, King described a dream, his dream of a nation where children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but their but rather by the contents of their character. Unfortunately, it's a dream that is yet to meet its full fulfillment. In that book also listed the hair-raising rants of Adolf Hitler as he called for ethnic cleansing and the beginning of a Third Reich of German German world dominance during the Second World War. And then there was the war cries of Winston Churchill as he challenged the citizens of the United Kingdom to brace themselves for battle, to boldly and bravely stand up against Nazi Germany in preparation for what would be known as Britain's finest hour. Then there were the war cries, or not the war, excuse me, there was the impassionate pleas of Nelson Mandela as he appealed to the people of South Africa to forgive their oppressors so that the nation's wounds could finally be healed. And friends, no doubt, no doubt these powerful speeches have shaped the history of our world. But let me tell you, friends, there's another kind of speech that not only shapes our world, but shapes the world to come. A heavenly utterance that brings change not only for time, but for all eternity. And that, my friends, is the awesome assertions Proclaim from the sacred desk the ancient words of God. The divine revelation proclaimed from that desk would change all of eternity. And friends, I want God to use my voice to do just that. How about you? Amen? It was in 1851 that the famous American writer Herman Maville wrote that book, Moby Dick. This book would end up being called The Greatest Book of the Sea, that has ever been written. Among literature buffs, it's a must-read, they say. And in this famous book, there's a singular line that illustrates and explains and describes the power of biblical preaching. I want you to notice what Maville wrote. He said that the world is a ship on its passage out, and the pulpit is its prow. Now, friends, the prow is the front of a ship that leads it in the right direction. Maville said that the pulpit is that prow that leads the ship of this world into the uncertain waters of the future. It's the pulpit, friends, that is the medium of moral accountability in a sin-saturated society. It holds in check the evils that seek to dominate our world. It's what gives direction and guidance in a world that's fallen off of the straight and narrow pathway of God's will. It's the power of preaching that shapes and changes men and nations, eternal destinies. At least this is what God meant for it to be. And if it's done correctly and spirit-filled, it's exactly what it does. The pulpit is the prow that leads the ship of the world into the peaceful waters of God's perfect will. And friends, did you know that that word pulpit is actually only found one time in the King James Version of the Bible. I want to show it to you. It's there in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4. One time the King James used the word pulpit. It says this. Talk about Ezra. The scribes stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And what did he do when he stood upon the pulpit of wood? 
In verse 8, write it down. It said, so they read in the book of the law of God, how? Distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Here we read in the book of Ezra, or the book of Nehemiah, how Ezra stood upon that pulpit of wood. And from that elevated platform, he preached from God's book. He broke down God's holy law. He helped people understand how it was applicable to them and helped them to understand God's perfect will. Now, that's the only time the word pulpit is mentioned. The English word pulpit is mentioned in the King James. But in Hebrew, that word pulpit is actually the word migdal. Can you say that? Now, the Hebrew word migdal is translated in English as pulpit only one time. We just read that verse. But that same word migdal is translated in English as tower 47 times. And the reason why is because the preacher's pulpit is God's, I I call it God's tower of power. It is the tower of, it's the watchtower, friends. The watchtower where dangers are discerned from the distance. It is the sacred stronghold where the trumpet of truth can be heard loud and clear. It is a prophetic platform where the messages of mercy from the Lord are given to the world. It is the rostrum of refuge where the name of the Lord is proclaimed. For the Bible says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The pulpit, friends, is a shining lighthouse where the beams of glory radiate from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary into our hearts and our lives. The pulpit, friends, is the divine desk that lifts up the holy word of God in a world full of unholy confusion. And it will be well for the preacher of righteousness to heed the words of the Lord when he spoke to Moses and said, take off your shoes for the place that you stand is holy ground. I like what HMS Richard said, famous Adventist preacher in his book, Feed My Sheep, page 95. Remember the pulpit is where God stands and where he speaks. Imagine Jesus standing by your side with his hand on your shoulder. We should enter the pulpit reverently and with no spiritual pride. The pulpit is no place for an actor or even an entertainer. It is the place for the ambassador of the Most High God. My friends, it is a very solemn thing to stand behind the sacred desk, to use our voices, to allow the Lord to use our voices to speak his words of truth in this world. And by the way, friends, this seminar, when we talk about the pulpit, we're not just referencing the literal pulpit. But, you know, each and every one of us, we have a pulpit. We have a platform. And that's the influence you have over others. So the pulpit is also the person that God places in your pathway from day to day. You may never have the opportunity of standing before a literal pulpit, even though I believe all of us can do it, and ought to be willing to do it. But the principles we will be enunciating and sharing in this seminar is something that we can apply to our daily witness. Our pulpit, friends, is the person that God places in our path from day to day. Amen? And so I hope you listen with those ears. I'll never forget standing on Martin Luther's pulpit. There in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, how many of you have been to Europe before? Been to those churches? You know I noticed something interesting about all the pulpits in Europe. They actually look like towers. They're elevated. Here's Luther's pulpit. It's, uh, they're, they're, they literally look like, like towers. You have to ascend stairs to get on the pulpits in the churches of Europe. 
And uh, they're always roped off, and you can't go on the pulpits. It's off limits to visitors. But we got to Luther's church at clo- right at closing time, and, uh, you know, the guard was about to close the door, but we begged him. We said, you know, we came all the way from the United States. We just, can you just give us a few minutes? And he let us in. And because we're the only ones in there, I asked him if I could ascend Luther's pulpit. And because no one was there, he let me go beyond the ropes. And I went up on Martin Luther's pulpit. Now, I believe that we should never have a superstitious reverence for a physical pulpit as if there is some kind of spiritual virtue in the wood itself. But we ought to have respect for the historical and prophetic events that took place in different places. It's an opportunity for us to remember and to learn and be inspired of what the Lord has done in the past. And so I stood there on Luther's pulpit trying to imagine what it would, must have been like to have been Martin Luther, who was preaching a message of salvation in an era of spiritual darkness, in a time when preaching the truth was a crime punishable by death at the stake. And I remember being so overwhelmed by inspiration that I began to preach to the empty pews. (laughs) I was reminded that we're walking in the footsteps of spiritual giants of the past. My friends, understanding the sacred responsibility that God has placed upon us and called us to, it would be well for us to approach God's tower of power with reverence and solemn awe, remembering that we don't use God's power, but rather God's power uses us. But the question I ask is this, what charges the tower with so much power? What exactly is the power upon the tower? My friends, the power of the pulpit does not come from the theories, the philosophies, and the ideologies of men. It does not originate with our opinions, interpretations, and speculations. But rather, the power upon the tower is the holy word of God. Can you say amen? Amen. The creative word of God. My friends, when you study the Bible, you'll notice that God always associates himself with speech. In fact, the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible tells us something about God. It tells us not only that he is creator, but he's a speaker. Isn't that right? For God created this world by the power of his word. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, he is called the word of God. The word, the logos, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega. And that is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Again, God is associated associating himself with with words or with speech. And even the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the Spirit of God came in the forms of tongues of fire. God always associates himself with speech. So the power on the tower is God's spoken word. It's the creative word of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 verse 11, write it down. Let's read it together. It says, so shall my word. Be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall what? Accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I have sent it. In other words, God's word has self-fulfilling power. God said, let there be light, 
and there was light. The word that God spoke had the power in it to do exactly what it said it would do. It says in Psalms 33, verse 6 and verse 9, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God's word has the power to self-fulfill. And friends, when God created mankind in his image, we who are created in the image of the divine speaker, when we speak, our words have power too. Not the same as God's, of course, but when we speak God's word, that word, that power flows in and through our lives as well. We've been called to preach the word, friends. The same word that brought worlds into existence. And think about that. The very word that brought the world and the universe into existence. God has called us to proclaim to the world. That's awesome, isn't it? What a solemn, solemn reality. Bible says that we are called to preach the word. Therefore, the word we must preach. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. We're called, my friends, to preach the word, not our opinions or our, our own ideas. We're not called to be original but rather to be faithful in preaching the word. And by the way, Paul said, preach the word. Jesus said, preach the gospel. Why? Because, friends, the true gospel is found in the word. In other words, any gospel that's not biblically founded is not the real gospel. It is the Bible that we find, in the Bible that we find our message. We find our method and our mission. Remember, friends, that God's primary way Not his only way, but the primary way God has chosen and ordained to reveal himself to us is through his objective word, not through a subjective personal experience, but rather the objective word of God. Thus, my friends, we cannot truly be gospel focused unless we are first biblically founded. Amen. And that's why it's a tragedy. It ought to disturb us. There are many churches of the world today that are putting the pulpit aside and putting God's word aside and preaching their own ideas. And yet they're claiming to preach the gospel. It's impossible to be gospel focused if we're not first biblically founded. Paul said, preach the word. Jesus said, preach the gospel because the gospel is found in the word. And it was through the preaching of the gospel of this word that the mighty prophetic movements rose to power to shape the destiny of the world. From the great Protestant Reformation to the great Advent movement, our beloved movement was born from prophetic vision, vision that was fueled by the fire of preaching. You see, friends, before we had institutions, before we had an organization, even before we had a system of truth, we had preaching. Preaching is what led this movement to where it is today, and it is also the means that will lead us all the way into the promised land. Biblical preaching, gospel preaching, Christ-centered preaching, spirit-filled preaching. And so, friends, to stand behind the pulpit as a messenger of the Lord is a sacred trust. The tower of power is too big for any, any one of us. 
It's more than we can handle. And so the question I ask myself is this. If it's bigger than us, then why choose us? Why did God choose sinful humanity to proclaim such a holy, sacred, and powerful message? What is the primary purpose of preaching? We want to discuss the theology of preaching, the logic of preaching. What is the primary purpose of it? Well, this is one of the clearest verses in the Bible that, that tells us why God chose preaching. It's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Please write it down. It says, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to do what? Save them that do what? That believed. So the purpose of preaching, friends, according to this passage, God ordained it to be his primary way of saving lost humanity. In other words, the object of preaching is to communicate truth so that men might believe, so that men might be saved. But how does that happen specifically? You see, preaching doesn't save anyone. The text says those who are saved are those who do what? Believe. Preaching doesn't save. But rather, the purpose of preaching is to give people a reason to believe so that they might be saved. That's the purpose of preaching. And through that process, God is not only trying to save the masses, he's trying to save the messenger as well. Amen? Because expression deepens impression. We say repetition deepens impression. Expression deepens impression too, not only upon those who are listening to us, but upon our own hearts and minds. Jesus said, you are clean by the word I've spoken unto you. And when that word is spoken unto us and then through us, it has a cleansing, justifying, sanctifying effect on our lives. Preaching, the purpose of it is to give people a reason to believe so that they might be saved. And then it says in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15, notice what it says here. It's, we, we find a, the salvific preaching process described. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? Without a preacher. And then it says, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So notice the salvific preaching process. Bible says you can't be saved unless you call upon the name of the Lord. But you can't call unless you believe. You can't believe unless you hear. You can't hear unless there's a preacher. And there can't be a preacher unless one is sent. And if you read that backwards, you're sent to preach so that people can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call, so that they might be saved. And so here's the purpose of preaching, the theology of preaching. Preaching is simply this, friends. It is the means of giving others a reason to believe so that they might be saved. And so as we stand upon the tower of power, let's never forget that we are engaged in a beautiful work that will change eternal destinies. Moville was right when he said that the pulpit is the prow 
that leads the world into the uncertain waters of the future. I like what Habakkuk said. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the what? The tower. And I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and do what? Make it plain upon tables that he may run that reads it. The Bible here likens the preacher to a watchman that's wide awake, standing upon the tower, watching and waiting and listening for a word from the Lord. And as the watchman hears God speak to him, he internalizes it in his heart, he writes it down, and then he makes it plain to others so that others may run and win the race of salvation. And so, friends, let us not sleep upon the tower of power. For the safety of the flock depends upon the watchfulness of God's watchmen. My wife and I were in Africa a few months ago. We had the privilege of preaching there on the Maasai Mara to the wonderful and beautiful people of Maasai land. And it was a beautiful experience. They dressed me up like a Maasai warrior so that I can connect with them. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Many people, over a thousand Maasai uh, people came from all over Maasai land to hear the message. And we had a beautiful experience that week there. And while we were there, we got the chance to go on a few African safaris. How many of you have been on an African safari before? Oh, it's absolutely incredible to see the animals in their natural habitat. And one of the most exciting things we saw was a pride of lions. They were hunting. We probably saw at least 30 lions throughout the time that we were there. But we saw the, the, a pride of lions who were on the hunt. And they were actually stalking a herd of antelopes that were in the distance. And these prowling lions, they were, they were stalking these That was the, on the menu uh, for them that day. But these lions were perfect, almost perfectly camouflaged in the grass. And... Uh, our driver parked us in between the lions and the antelope. So we got, they were looking straight at us, but they're actually looking, you know, beyond us to the antelopes that were behind us. And we were able to catch these amazing creatures and seeing them stalking their prey. But when we looked back, we saw that all the antelopes were relaxed. All of them had their heads up and they were looking. They could see the lions in the distance, these swift creatures were standing erect, heads up, nostrils enlarged, their pupils were dilated. They had no fear because as long as they could see the lion, they would see when the lion would pounce and they would be able to outrun the lion very easy. And so the lion took off, run, running straight at us. Got some amazing pictures. It went right around this, but it couldn't catch the antelopes. All of them ran away. But then later that same day, we're driving on our safari and we saw a whole herd of antelopes sleeping in the dry grass. They were fast asleep. And I thought to myself, how could they sleep and be so relaxed? Don't they know that there are ravenous lions walking about seeking whom they may devour? How could they be so relaxed when there are lions that are almost perfectly camouflaged in the golden grass? But then I looked a little bit further and I saw one singular antelope standing on a tower of dirt. His head was up, 
His ears were forward. He was scanning the plains, watching over the fold. He was the watchman standing on the tower of power, looking for danger, ready to alert and give a message of warning to the resting flock. And when I saw that, I said a prayer. I said, Lord, make me like that. A faithful watchman, wide awake, standing on the tower of power. That's what I want to be. How about you? Amen? A wide awake watchman. My, my friends, the purpose of preaching is to give people a reason to believe that they might be saved. To lift up the power of God's word. We need to be alert and awake. Notice how the Apostle Paul put it. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19, he said, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, And has given us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the what? The word of reconciliation. The ministry that God has given to his people is a ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of the word that brings the reconciliation. In other words, friends, we have to understand that that we cannot reconnect man to God in some kind of Catholic papal way, but rather by the word of reconciliation, proclaimed. That's how we fulfill the ministry of reconciliation. God, my friends, the Bible says, has given to the church the keys of the kingdom. You find that in Matthew 16, verse 19. You can look that up later. He's given to the church the keys of the kingdom. Now, some people think that that means we can determine who's saved and lost. Some churches believe that. But what exactly does that mean? What what are the keys to the kingdom that God has given to the church? Well, if you write these scriptures down, look it up later. In Luke 11, verse 52, the Bible talks about the key of knowledge. And then in Romans 3, verse 2, it talks about the oracles of God that has been entrusted to his people. In other words, the keys to the kingdom of heaven is basically the keys of knowledge. It's the oracles of God, the, the word of God made known to others. And so you have to think about it that, that when you witness, when you share the, the message of Jesus behind a pulpit or in a personal Bible study or standing at, in the line of the grocery store or handing out a glow track, what you're really doing, friends, is this. You are unlocking the gates of heaven for people to come in. Isn't that amazing? God has given to the church the keys to the kingdom. And when you are sharing God's message, God's word faithfully, it's like you are literally opening the gates of heaven, inviting people to spend eternity with God. Oh, friends, what a sacred honor. What a solemn responsibility it is to stand behind God's tower of power. Amen? But preaching is much more than communicating the knowledge of salvation. It is also a compelling appeal for people to choose it for themselves. We're not simply aiming to inform the mind, but rather God is aiming to transform the heart. Information without application results in condemnation. Because to whom much is given, much is required. So we're not merely sharing the information of the word. 
but we're appealing to people to choose it for themselves that there might be application that results in salvation. And so the Tower of Power does more than communicate information, but rather transformation of the heart. But how does this happen? In the book Gospel Workers, page 152, it says this. Men who assume the responsibility of giving to the people the word from the mouth of God make themselves accountable for the influence they exert on their hearers. If they are true men of God, they will know that the object of preaching is not to what? Not to entertain. It is not merely to convey information or to convince the intellect. The preaching of the word should appeal to the intellect and should impart knowledge. Friends, I'm so grateful that the message we share is not only beautiful, but it's also intellectually stimulating. Amen? I believe that the biblical worldview is the thinking person's worldview. God doesn't expect us to have a blind faith, but rather an intelligent faith. Our message is not only biblical, it's beautiful, and it's intellectually stimulating. But notice, it says, but it should do more than this. The minister's utterance to be effectual must reach the what? The hearts of his hearers. And so if that's the case, the question is this. How do we reach the heart? How exactly does that take place? Well, we will answer this question. This is the main question of the seminar. We're going to answer this question in various ways throughout the rest of the five presentations we have together today and tomorrow. But let me give you the most important answer. How do we reach the hearts of those who we're speaking to? The most important answer is this. In order to reach the hearts of others, that word must first reach our hearts. In other words, friends, the power of the preacher cannot be taught and it cannot be bought. It can only be sought. And caught. You see, anyone can learn to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or a baller. But no one can simply learn to be a preacher. Because the office of the preacher, it isn't an academic profession, but rather it is an individualized confession of an experience that we personally have with the power of Jesus and his word. In other words, the office of preaching or, or witnessing, it's not the job of the mere professor of religion, but rather it is the all-consuming passion of the possessor of Christ. And friends, this is where preaching needs to become personal. That is, we need to be filled with the person of Christ. I call this preachers, not of profession. We have a lot of those, professional preachers. We don't want to be like that. We want to be preachers of possession. The power of preaching comes from the Word of God. The purpose of preaching, that was our second point, is to give men and women a reason to believe that they might be saved. And now our third and final point, the possession of preaching is an experience with the divine person behind the passage. And that is Jesus. For he said that the scriptures testify of him. 
And so what does it mean? How can we be preachers, not of profession, but preachers of possession? Well, notice what the apostle said. One of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 and verse 7. It says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Tell me, friends, when did God do that? When did God command light to shine from darkness? In creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the big bang right there. God said it. Bang, it happened. (laughs) So the apostle is describing the God who creates with the power of his word. But he said that that same God has shined in our hearts. Because just like this world was before God spoke life and light into existence, so too is the heart of humanity dark, cold, and empty. But God wants to speak that word into our hearts. To give the light of the what? The knowledge of what though? The glory of God. Another word for glory in the Bible is character. The character of God found in the what? The face of Jesus Christ. So the word of God, friends, that spoke light into a dark world is found right here. That word God wants to speak into our own hearts, that we might have the knowledge of who he is, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I like to say, friends, that the Bible is God's Facebook. For when you read the scriptures, you see the unseen God. You see the face of Jesus. When you read the Bible, you, 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 know, you know what God is up to. You find God's update status. The Facebook of God reveals who the friends of God are, what God likes and what he dislikes. We need to spend time in God's Facebook. Amen? But then notice, it says that God's word contains the light of the knowledge of God. But then in verse 7, it says, but We have, we have this what? Now, what is the treasure that it's referring to according to the previous verse? It's the light of the knowledge of who God is, the glory of God. It says that we have this treasure. Oh, it's a treasure, friends. That's the hidden treasure that we need to sell all in order to obtain. We have this treasure where? In earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of who? God and not of us. So it says here that we have the treasure. The treasure is the light of the knowledge, and that treasure is in the earthen vessel. Another translation says jars of clay. And friends, that's what God made us from. We are nothing but clay. God has called us to be earthen vessels, jars of clay. And friends, that is actually a reference to the lamps that were used in the ancient world. I took this picture when I was in Israel a few years ago. That's a biblical lamp. It's actually a jar of clay, an earthen vessel that's filled with oil that causes the fire, the light, to shine in the house. In other words, in this passage, Paul is employing an object lesson to represent preachers of, not profession, but preachers of possession. You see, we are that earthen vessel that God wants to place the excellency of his power in. We are all the product of the potter's hand. 
an earthen vessel he formed from the dust of the ground, and now he wants to fill the earthen jar of clay, the empty vessel of our lives, with the oil of his spirit that we might shine as lights in a world of darkness. We are to be the lamp, the what? The lamp that lifts up the light. You see, Jesus is the light. He calls us to be the light of the world, but we're not really the light. We are the lamp that lifts up that light. We're the earthen vessel, friends, the jar of clay. And that power is not of us, Paul said. However, it is placed in us. When the power of his word is placed in us, then it will shine through us. And more than professing Christ on our lips, we will possess Christ in our lives, in our hearts. Amen? That's a preacher of possession. That's the lamp filled with the oil. Preachers of of possession ought to have the experience like Mary did. Bible tells us that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, that holy seed was implanted in her. And after nine months, listen, 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 after nine months of possessing Christ in her womb, then that word was made flesh, and the world could see then the unseen God. Friends, we need to have the experience of the Virgin Mary, where the Spirit of God overshadows overshadows us. We have intimacy with God, and God implants the seed of his word in the womb of our mind and our heart. And after time of possessing that word and allowing that word to grow in us and change us, then finally that word is made flesh and delivered, birthed, you can say, behind the pulpit so that people can see by the words we're speaking, the word pictures we're sharing, they can see the unseen God. Can you say amen? The word is made flesh in and through our lives. This is the experience of the preacher of possession. How many of you want this experience? It's important that we started with this subject, this topic, in this seminar. It's really foundational. It's very simple but profound at the same time. My friends, preaching is not something that can simply be taught or bought. It must be sought and caught. It's not merely a profession, but it's a possession. It's an experience with the person behind the passage that is Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to have that experience more deeply. How about you? Amen? So what is preaching? Well, I believe it's so personal that it's something that we ought to define for ourselves. We see a general definition here in the Bible. We see what the purpose of it is, but... But it has to be so personal for us that we have to come up with our own uh, 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 model, our own definition of preaching as, as it comes from our own lives. And so considering everything that has been shared so far, I want you to take just a minute. And I want you to write down your personal definition of preaching based upon what we studied, based upon your experience. Just go ahead and take a minute and do that. And we'll allow a few people to share before we bring this to a a close this morning. Concerning what we studied, take a minute, write down your personal theology of preaching. Do that now.
All right. Who would like to share? Just raise your hand. Go ahead, brother, with a loud voice. Amen. Preaching is a, an experience we have that we share with others, a living testimony. Beautiful. Someone raise your hand here. Go ahead, brother. Amen. Revealing the plan of salvation to others. Good. Living expression of the living word. Amen. God is not dead. We serve a living Christ. God is alive and well, not only back then, but today. Beautiful. Sharing Christ to you. Beautiful. An expression of what happened in your own personal devotional life. Beautiful. So the best sermons you ever share is, is what God gives you personally right there in your devotions. Right over here, a few more, and then... Amen. Powerful. Beautiful. There's so much, and I wish we had the time to hear what everyone has to say, but uh, since we only have a few more minutes, let me share with you my definition. This is what the Lord gave to me. My personal theology of preaching is simply this. It is the personal illumination of divine revelation erupting in public proclamation. That's how I feel preaching is for me. The personal illumination of divine revelation erupting in public proclamation. It is the volcanic eruption of the Word of God through our proclamation. It is the overflow of our experience with the power of God's Word. Friends, there can be no separation between the man and the message. Because someone said that preaching is what's true through you. It's truth through personality. And Ellen White agrees with that. I want you to notice what it says in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 300. We are never to forget that Christ teaches through his servants. There may be conversions without the instrumentality of a sermon, where persons are so situated that they are deprived of every means of grace, and they are wrought upon by the Spirit of God and convinced of the truth through the reading of the Word. But God's appointed means of the, of the saving of souls is through the what? Not the preaching of foolishness, but the foolishness of preaching. And so, friends, remember that preaching is not a mere profession, but it's an all-consuming possession. When the Spirit of God has captured and consumed our hearts, it will then capture and consume the hearts of our hearers. And, friends, this has always been the experience of preachers of possession. Jeremiah had that experience when he said in chapter 20 and verse 9 of his book, But his word was in mine heart as burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. He couldn't hold it back. He had to let it out. The apostle said, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They've seen it. They'd heard it with their own ears. And as a result of what they saw, what they see, and what they heard, they couldn't help but speak those things. They had to make it known. In Romans 1, 15 and 16, Paul said, I am ready to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the what? 
the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. That's the power of the tower. And friends, how, how many of you have had that experience before? Well, you've been, you've been spending time with the Lord in prayer and Bible study. And you've read something, you've learned something that has just grabbed and gripped your heart. And, 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 and the, the, the text was not only speaking to you personally, but it was, it was as if it was saying to you, you must share me with someone. You must preach me. <laughs> and that's a wonderful experience. Where you're so moved by the word that you can't keep quiet, that you have to get it out of you or else you're, you feel like you're going to explode. And until we get that experience, neither we nor our hearers will ever fully know the power of the tower. And so as we close, don't ever forget that the power, number one, point number one, the power of preaching is found in the creative word of God. Not our own ideas, our speculations, or interpretations, but the Word. Number two, the purpose of preaching is to give men and women a reason to believe so that they might be saved. And then number three, the possession of preaching is an experience with the person behind the passage that is Jesus. That is what makes us preachers of possession, that we might stand upon the tower of power as faithful watchmen. Amen? In our next presentation, we're going to take a deeper look as to the reason why God chose the foolishness of preaching as his primary means of saving the lost. We will discuss some of the challenges and limitations of preaching and how to overcome them. And we're going to discover God's wisdom in using this method. And so we hope you come back for that. If if not, we won't take it personal. But uh, if you want to be a preacher of possession, and, and by the way, let me remind us, we're not just talking about standing behind a literal pulpit, but your pulpit is the person that, that God places in your path from day by day. Amen? Amen? If you want to be a preacher of possession, stand with me as we close with prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for calling us, for choosing us. We are frail, we are weak, we are sinful. We are broken. We're an empty jar of clay. We have no light to give. But we thank you, Lord, that you desire to dwell in our hearts. You desire to fill us. And so we open our heart to you, dear God. Would you please fill us with your power, your presence. Fill us with the oil of your spirit and Light us up, Lord, that we might be that lamp lifting up the light that changes the eternity of individuals. Lord, we recognize and acknowledge that we're not worthy, but we thank you that you are. So take our weakness, take our sinfulness, give us your strength and your righteousness. And help us, Lord, to be faithful, wide-awake watchmen, faithfully doing our duty. Thank you so much, Lord, for hearing and answering this prayer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.